Stevie Nicks is a major figure in wealth mythology. Oh, I never knew that. Seth and I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast, please do us a solid and go ahead and share it with friends. Also, if you rate and review it on whatever podcasting platform you listen, it will get to other people and that'd be good. We want more people to hear about this stuff that we think is so cool. So share, rate, review, and thank you. Hey Rockers, welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast. I'm your co-host, Seth Hinkley, sitting here with the Pete Townsend of my Keith Moon, the doodad's number one daddy-o, Mr. Matt Black. What's up, Matt? Not much, Seth. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Good to see you in faraway, warmer lands. You still at 19 degrees, or you picked up a bit? No. Okay. No, we're picked up. We're I think we're at 45 or 50 now. Oh, balmy. So. Don't even need a jacket. <laughs> I'm still wearing a long sleeve t-shirt today. Though, what, so well, well what are you wearing? What's on that long sleeve t-shirt? I'm wearing my Rush R40 t-shirt okay. from 2015. Interesting. From their Houston show. It's got the uh, Signals dog on the front nice. and the Starman on the back. What are you wearing? I'm wearing my Eric Clapton shirt. It's a significant shirt because Eric Clapton obviously is a legendary Strat player, but this is a Clapton shirt where the guitar on the shirt is a 59 Les Paul. I'm really not sure who made that shirt or why, because he, he did play a Les Paul early in his career, but he's definitely a Strat guy. So now that we've got our shirts out of the way, what are we doing today, Matt? I think this one was your idea. We are doing songs with a name as the title. A name as the title, not a name in the title. So well, let's see. I guess we can talk yeah. about criteria. Yeah, I think and we should. And the criteria that I had, because there are so many songs with so names many. in the title. Yeah. I mean, I thought that we had some show ideas that had tons and tons of songs, but I think this one has more songs than any of the other show so ideas that we've ever had. I think so, too. Uh, it was so crazy. when I started looking at it, it was songs with a name in the title. And when I saw the number, I was like, no, it's got to be songs where the name is the title. I took out names of places... So it's just the name of a person, and it's not. Oh, I always the assumed it was a name, person. So never even thought of places. Yeah. So songs like "Hey Jude," "Sarah Smile," "Jesse's Girl," "My Sharona" are not going to be in this list. And I even took out titles like "Captain" and "Mr." or "Mrs." So you're not going to see "Miss Gradenko" by the Police or "Mrs. Robinson" or any of those songs. And I additionally used the Matt Black rule of not using songs I've used well, before. That's, that's a given. <laughs> like Biko by Peter Gabriel. Good one. Or Diana by Brian Adams that I used last episode. Mm. Or Josie by Steely Dan that I did in our best intros episode. Did you use all of that or some of this? Or no, none we of didn't, it? We didn't line use? up exactly. I was okay with a word in the title that wasn't the name as long as it wasn't more information or, or change the meaning of the title. So for example, the Beatles song, Martha, My Dear, it's still just Martha, really. There's not much more information. But on the other hand, the Beatles song, For the Benefit of Mr. Kite, is more than just the name. Yeah. So like, A Message to You, Rudy, Sheena is a Punk Rocker, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, that has more information than just the name. So I stuck to the name, or the name with some extraneous extra words that don't really do much. In the end, only one of okay. my song titles has a word that isn't the name. But I added one that I'm suspecting from your t-shirt that you didn't. I didn't pick 
epic songs where the name is of a, a recognizable public figure, like Buddy Holly oh, okay. by Weezer, or Clint Eastwood by Gorillaz, or Grace Kelly by Mika, or Tom Sawyer by Rush. So, okay. <laughs> so that was the other thing. <laughs> I already know not only that we're going to get a lot of feedback that we left certain songs off the list, but which songs and from which listeners. And I just want to say that just because <laughs> your favorite song with the name, let's say, Amanda or Beth or Jessica is not on our list, it doesn't mean it's not a good song with the name as the title. It just means we don't think it's top five material. That's all. As you said, there's so many names we couldn't possibly list them all. Even in the honorable mentions, it's too many. I know. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. the thing is, this list, you ask me tomorrow, I'm yeah. probably going to have a different list. And I think you're probably that way too. Yeah, just I was because there's happy so with my many list though. I got to say, I liked it. There's so many songs, but so many of them are also good. A lot of times I have trouble where I might think of 40 songs and I'm like eight of them are really good and I have a trouble getting from 8 to 5. This time I had no trouble. The 5 to me were really obvious even though I had hundreds of other possibilities. All my honorable mentions never really had a chance to make it past these 5. Oh man, I'm totally opposite. I think I started out with 75 or 85 a or 100 songs. Yeah, it was a lot. I had about 40. And I went through and I just highlighted the ones that I thought were in the running for the top five. Mm -hmm. And that was like 25 songs. Mm -hmm. So I pulled the matte black. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm totally using all the stuff that you use. (laughs) I made a playlist. There you go. I started listening to them. And I was like, okay, this one, that one. And I got it down to about 10. And then I was Yeah, it was the tough choices really came. So what I did was I, I put all of those in my honorable mentions along with some more that if I had a list of 15, those would have made it. I used the Matt Black method to make my list this time. All right, but before we get to it, over-under. So many songs like you said, but what, what do you think the over-under is? Go ahead. We usually stay at one and a half, and I think I'm going to go with that, but I'm going to go with the under. Uh, just I, because there's so stinking many of these songs. I am too, but I would not be at all surprised if four of my five songs are on your list. I wouldn't be surprised to see them there. However, as you say, t- too many choices. Who so knows? I'll take the under also. So you went first last time. No, I think you did. So Didn't you? I, I think you did. So I'll go, go first this time. My number five, technically it's not a rock song because <laughs> they're a rap group, but... It's Shadrach by the Beastie Boys. Okay. This song's off Paul's Boutique from 1989 when the Beasties teamed up with the Dust Brothers after leaving Def Jam and moving out to LA. We just talked about that. Yeah, we did. The Dust Brothers were what got the Beasties into sampling almost everything that they could. When they started making that record, they just started listening to records and trying to figure out what they wanted to use. They start the chorus of the song by saying the three names, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And in the track, those are sampled from Sly and the Family Stone's song, Loose Booty. And that's also where they sampled the trumpet and the female chorus where it's, hey, 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 from. And the drum beat allegedly is sampled from the song Hot and Nasty by a band called Black Oak, Arkansas which I'm not sure if they're famous for a whole lot, but that's where they got the beat from. And the chorus refers to the biblical story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace from the book of Daniel. And that's not the only biblical reference in this song that came up with, who shall inherit the earth? The meek shall. (laughs) That's from the gospel of Matthew. And there's a line in this song that I always thought was only about clothes. 
It's the line, got more suits than Jacoby and Myers. <laughs> I, for you don't all get the, world, the Jacoby Myers the Jacoby, reference, do you? Yeah. Do you? No, I, I yeah. didn't. I didn't until, a, until a few area. months ago. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought it was a clothing store in New York. It's not. It's a personal injury law firm. I know, man. I grew and up in the tri-state area, and you see the Jacoby and Myers ads all the time. I know. They had tons of advertisements because they did car wreck cases and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, it's maybe they're talking about they own more actual suits oh, they than Jacoby and Myers and lawsuits. lawsuits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a lawyer, I, I don't remember where I figured that out. It was only a few months ago, and I was like... Oh, I never knew that. So, yeah, I did not grow up in the tri-state area, so I didn't know. So, we had a yeah, lot of our own advertising. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like the guy down here is, I'm Jim Adler, the Texas Hammer. So, yeah, I mean. Oh, man, ask me know, about just... Crazy 80 someday. <laughs> crazy oh, I know 80 about was the Crazy appla- oh, you know about Crazy 80? All right. Anyway, moving yeah, on. Sorry, so I, I didn't want to derail your Paul's Boutique segment here. That's okay, man. Yeah. That's all I've got. Uh, I love Shadrach. Cool. It's a great song. My daughter loves it. Shadrach by the Beastie Boys is my number five. Okay. What's the start of your list, dude? My number five is from a band that I saw live this summer, and it's one of their most well-known songs, but I'd never heard it till I saw them live, because I'm not a huge fan, but I like the band. The one and only Mark Hyman and I went to see Pink Martini in concert this summer in New York. Okay. Pink Martini's sometimes singer, it's really unclear to me whether she's totally part of the band or they just are really closely affiliated and she's, she performs with them. <laughs> Her name is China Forbes, and she wrote a song called Hey Eugene, and it's hilarious, and it's basically this woman you get the sense she's talking on the phone not to the person or maybe she's leaving a message but it's like hey Eugene you remember me we danced all night at that party and like she's basically it's this she just gets kind of you know more and more I wouldn't say irate but more and more worked up as the call goes on you remember this happened you remember that happened remember how you said you were going to call me remember how I wrote down my number on a napkin like this whole thing and the horns just at the end Pink Martini's a great band by the way in the show that Mark and I saw we counted up the number of languages they sang songs in and I think it was 11 yeah no, wow. no, jo- no joke but anyway at the end of the song the horns come in and the outro chorus it's just spectacular it lifts you off the ground it's just a funny song it's really fun to sing along to it's really fun to listen to I'm going to try to see if I can get some musical ensemble that I play with to get to perform this one live because it's got a great <laughs> horn section I don't have much more to say about it than that Hey Eugene by Pink Martini sweet I don't know the song I'm going to have to go find it is it on Spotify? Mm-hmm. okay yeah. cool So what's your number four, Seth? So my number four is Jane by Jefferson Starship. I don't know that one. This band, oh, I think you do. I think you do know Jane. You just haven't heard it in a very long time. For those of you that don't know, Jefferson Starship is the middle name of three names of this (laughs) band. So they started out as Jefferson Airplane in the 60s. At some point in the 70s, I think, they changed it to Jefferson Starship. And then finally in the 80s, they just dropped the Jefferson and went to Starship. If you're looking for songs from this band, you got to look for like all three names. So (laughs) yeah, it's just a weird deal about them changing names. So this song, Jane, is a 1979 song that hit number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. And Mickey Thomas is the guy singing it, and his vocals are really powerful in this song. And it takes some twists and turns musically while keeping the really staccato piano and guitar parts. The rhythm guitar, I think, in this song is as good as or better than the lead in the solos, which are awesome in their own right. 
The thing that most people know about Jefferson Airplane slash Jefferson Starship slash Starship is that their lead vocalist was a woman named Grace Slick. Mm-hmm. And she was famously one of the, the lead person in the band. She was like the face of the band. But on this album, Freedom at Point Zero, that's the only Jefferson Starship in the middle range in the 70s and 80s. This is the only album that she's not on. Hmm. And I have no idea why she bailed out from the band. I didn't research why she had bailed out from the band, but you don't hear her sing on this record at all. And that's what gives Mickey Thomas the ability to be right at the front of the song. I think it's their best song. They also have a really bad song called We Built This City that people love to hate. Yeah, but this one's actually really good. So go look it up. Cool. Jane by Jefferson Starship. Well, well That's let's listen. Number four. Let's listen to it. Okay, we'll listen to it right here. All right, man, what's your number four? Well, my number four has to do with my T-shirt, my Eric Clapton T-shirt, and it said he probably was still playing a Les Paul around this time. Probably, you can guess, the song is Layla from 1970. Layla. Yeah. By the way, uh, I forgot to say, Hey Eugene is from 2007, and it's the only one that's not from the 70s on my list, and it's the only one that is a man's name instead of a woman's name. But Layla, the name comes from a 7th century Persian story, which was later developed into a 12th century Persian poem by the poet Nizami Ganjavi. The the two main characters in the poem are the Bedouin poet, you know what, I'm just going to butcher the pronunciations, Qais ibn al-Mulawa and his lover Layla bint Madi, or also known as Layla al-Amiraya. Please, someone who knows how to pronounce that, record yourself, send it to us at podcast at (laughs) rock-u.fr. Clapton's friend, Ian Dallas, who is a Scottish Sufist Muslim cleric and philosopher and teacher, gave Clapton a copy of this book. And the story is about a young man who's hopelessly in love with a beautiful young girl but can't marry her because she's pledged to another man or has forced to marry another man. And he goes crazy because he can't marry her. Well, let's move on to the story and why this resonated with Eric Clapton. I would be shocked if we've never talked about this, but this is a pretty important I think we piece have. of rock history. right? So Patty Boyd, who George Harrison met on the set of A Hard Day's Night because she played one of the girls who the Beatles sang one to the on the train. fans. Yeah. Well, she, had, she didn't have a speaking part, but she had a, you know, she, there was a couple of moments where she was the only one on the camera, was George Harrison's wife. And Eric Clapton fell in love with her. And he became so obsessed with her that he actually dated her sister, um, whose name escapes me at the moment. Miss Boyd. Yeah. Eventually, he played her lately, got her to like come away with him privately, and he played her the song, asked her to leave George Harrison and marry him, which she didn't do. He went into a tailspin for three years, got addicted to, I want to say heroin at that point, disappeared Maybe, from the world, yeah. got himself clean, came back and you know renewed his interest, his overtures to her, and she eventually did leave George Harrison and marry Eric Clapton. Then she later divorced Eric Clapton, too. By the way, I should mention that Clapton and Harrison stayed close friends, and 
Harrison referred to Clapton as his husband-in-law because the two of them and <laughs> Patty Boyd too. In any case, we've talked about Derek and the Dominoes. I can't remember which episode it was. Clapton recruited the musicians who ended up being Derek and the Dominoes. They ended up backing George Harrison on the All Things Must Pass album and they decided to record as Derek and the Dominoes and they went to see the Allman Brothers and Clapton went up to Dwayne Allman and Dwayne Allman yeah. was completely starstruck. Clapton invited him in the studio and Dwayne Allman wrote the riff for Layla. He wrote it in the studio yeah. as they were playing and they recorded it and he wasn't an official member of the band which we, we've discussed before on a previous episode but they only ended up recording right, this yeah. one LP anyway. This is the only album they ever made so more or less you can consider yeah. him a member of the band. So Tom Dowd who was the producer said there had to be some sort of telepathy going on because I've never seen spontaneous inspiration happen at that rate and level. One of them would play something. He's talking about Dwayne Allman and Eric Clapton. The other reacted instantaneously. Yeah. Never once did either of them have to say, could you play that again, please? It was like two hands in a glove. They got tremendously off on playing with each other. In this recording, they're actually playing through the two inputs of the same small Fender amp which was mic'd, and which is a very interesting sound. Wow. It almost sounds like they're joined. I mean, it's hard to just, it's, sometimes it's hard to discriminate between the two guitar sounds. Mm -hmm. Layla is really about Clapton's longing for Patty Boyd, and you can hear it in his vocal delivery. I mean, he's got so many great songs as a guitarist, but I don't think he's got a song that comes close to Layla in terms of how expressive he is in his vocals. It's really a, a beautiful yeah. performance. By the way, the, the famous acoustic version from Unplugged is more like what Clapton had in mind before Dwayne Allman came into the studio and wrote the riff, and they turned it into a rocker. Wrote the riff and played that slide part, which is amazing. Yeah, it is. And they, there's a whole bunch of overdubs, but it's all those guys. Another interesting coda to the uh, song is the piano outro, which was added sort of a bit later. It was in a different key, and they had to blend the two together, which makes some weird stuff going on. Played by Jim Gordon from Derek and the Dominoes, and it's called The Piano Movement. I can't think of another song that Bohemian Rhapsody maybe is probably the only one, but where you talk about the different part of the song <laughs> being a different movement. Of course, though, Jim Gordon stole it from his ex-girlfriend, Rita Coolidge, who was the one who had written that. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty well documented. Yes, I wouldn't say proven, but pretty well accepted that he did not write that, even though he was credited. Patty Boyd said, and I'm quoting her, I think that he was amazingly raw at the time. He's such an incredible musician that he's able to put his emotions into music in such a way that the audience can feel it instinctively. It goes right through you. And I completely agree with her assessment. This is a uh, an outpouring of something, frustration and pain and longing and sadness, and it just really comes yeah. through. So Layla is my number four. To pick Layla as number four, you must have some really good songs. I, as a matter of fact, up. I do. <laughs> what's your number? I can't remember if you're on three or four. I'm on three. All right, what's your three? So my three is Baba O'Reilly by The Who. I figured from your uh, intro. <laughs> so after Pete Townsend wrote the rock opera Tommy, he had another idea to write a futuristic musical dystopian fantasy where enslaved people had never heard rock and roll and are freed by the connectivity of music. The project was called Lifehouse. He was inspired by an Indian musicologist, and I'm going to probably butcher this name, Inavat Khan, who said that music could unite the world in a single harmony. Combining those ideas... Townsend wrote some songs with futuristic sounding music and focused on certain explorations of single chords. Now, the lyrics of Baba O'Reilly were meant to introduce the characters and the setting of the story of Lifehouse. 
And Pete Townsend took ideas from a lot of places. And he recalled the debris left behind by the audience of the Who's gig in 1969 at the Isle of Wight Festival. He also recalled the absolute desolation of teenagers at Woodstock, where audience members were strung out on acid and 20 people had brain damage. Hmm. Uh, he, He called this bleak landscape that he remembered seeing a teenage wasteland which is where he got the line in the song. Mm. The synth line that starts this song is something that Pete came up with after playing with some of these massive synthesizers that he would get the sounds by taking, it looked like an old telephone exchange where you put one plug into a different slot in the synthesizer to make a different sound and then pull it out and put it in a different plug to make another sound. They recorded the song live with the synth track that Townsend had already laid laid down playing in their headphones. And that version by The Who was a 30-minute long version of Baba O'Reilly. They edited it down to about five minutes to end up on Who's Next. And then when the song was finished, they added the violin played by a guy named Dave Arbus at the end That was Keith Moon's idea, according to producer Hmm. Glenn Johns. He was like, man, what if we put this in here? Lifehouse, the project, was intended to be a double album and a movie, and it ended up being too complicated for Townsend to finish. His idea for the project was so complicated that the rest of the band really didn't understand it. So that's why it kind of fell apart. Hmm. But the building blocks of that project ended up being the album Who's Next from 1971, which I think is their absolute masterpiece of an album. Cool. And Townsend himself said, Who's Next felt like the Who's first proper album. Let's play a little bit of Baba O'Reilly now. One more fact about this. This is the song that The Who usually finishes their concert with because it's such a big deal and the the windmill guitar strokes and everything from Townsend and everybody usually sings along with it. So that's my number three, Baba O'Reilly. Cool. Which oddly enough is not mentioned in the song, but that's the title of it. Cool. What's your number three? My number three is a big one. It's a country song, but it's been covered as a rock song many times, and this person's a very influential root in the rock tree. It's Jolene by Dolly Parton. Yep, definitely. Everybody knows she's a country singer, but she's also a great writer. She claims to have written Jolene and I Will Always Love You, which of course was famously covered by Whitney Houston, on the same day. On the same day. Yeah. Yeah. That's a career day for anybody. That's a whole career for most people. For Dolly Parton. Yeah. Yeah. So the song is based on a bank teller who flirted with her husband after when she had been was recently married. We've talked about Jolene before. I use the cake song, also called Jolene, but not a cover. I use the cake song as uh, one of our spookiest songs, and I postulated that maybe the cake song was from a different point of view in the same story, a jealous lover, something something gone seriously wrong. The song has always been a little bit ambiguous to me. Like I I always hear a threat in the lyrics, which I don't think a lot of people do hear. I don't. It seems like a veiled threat, like, you know, be ashamed of something happened to it, like that kind of thing. But she's (laughs) she's asking this woman, Jolene, to leave her husband alone because Jolene is so beautiful that there's no way her husband can resist her. Let's listen to a little bit of Jolene right here. Now I can eat. 
Now, the guy playing that incredibly fast guitar riff, finger-picking it, is a guy named Chip Young. It's Mm -hmm. a really hard riff to play. But interestingly enough, one of my favorite versions of Jolene is a few years ago, somebody put on the internet that exact track, but slowed way down, and it sounds great. A little more ominous, maybe, than the original, which might be one of the reasons why I hear it that way. But I'm not the only one. <laughs> I think they took it. They took the 45 version and played it at 33 and a third. I'm not sure exactly, it but it's like just, that. I don't. I don't know. It could have been done it's, digitally. It's amazing. Either way, it sounds great. Yeah, I'll try. I'll include a link to that in the show notes because I do. I do think it's an improvement. Actually, it's been Me famously too. covered by the White Stripes recently by Maniskin, Monoskin, Miley Cyrus. Pentatonix had a big hit with it, and it is number 63 on mm-hmm. Rolling Stone's top 500 songs list, and it is my number three song with the name as the title. What's your number two? My number two is my shirt. It's Tom Sawyer. You had it picked. Um, (laughs) It's probably the best known song from Rush. Getty Lee has referred to it as the band's defining piece from the early 80s. Yeah, <laughs> I love the pause in that. Yeah, a little, <laughs> a little, uh, little shade there. <laughs> so, this is the song where Getty switched from his then signature Rickenbacker 4001 to a Fender jazz bass that he allegedly bought from a pawn shop. Neil Peart, in talking about the lyrics of the song, said, "Tom Sawyer was a collaboration between myself and Pi Dubois." an excellent lyricist who wrote the lyrics for Max Webster. Max Webster, if you don't know, it was another Canadian band that Rush used to love to play with, and they opened for Rush on on a few of their tours, I think. Neil says, His original lyrics were kind of a portrait of a modern-day rebel, a free-spirited individualist, striding through the world, wide-eyed and purposeful. I added the themes of reconciling the boy and man in myself and the difference between what people are and what others perceive them to be. Hmm. Alex Lifeson was asked in a 2007 interview about his guitar solo on the song, and he said, I winged it, honest. I came in, did five takes, then went off and had a cigarette. I'm at my best for the first two takes. After that, I overthink everything and I lose the spark. Actually, the solo you hear is composed together from various takes. So if you ever saw Rush live, especially in their later years, you know the band likes to have fun with their music. One of the things that they did was have the folks from South Park, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who are actually friends of the band, create an exclusive short animated introduction for the 2007 Snakes and Arrows tour. In the video, the kids have a band called Lil Rush, and Cartman, who is playing keyboards (laughs) and singing, takes Getty's role, and he sings the incorrect lyrics that confuse Tom Sawyer with Huckleberry Finn, (laughs) which leads to an argument with Kyle. It's hilarious. There's a, a couple of them up on YouTube where somebody in the audience recorded it. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And the great thing is when they redo the count in, when Cartman counts it in, he goes, a one and a two and a one, two, three, a one, two, three. And then the band kicks off with the huge synthesizer that starts off Tom Sawyer. Hmm. Now, I know you guys probably already know Tom Sawyer singing it in your head, but let's listen to a little bit of it. Love that so scene. that's my number two, Tom Sawyer by Rush. 
Not my favorite Rush song, mm-hmm. but it's it's up there. It's really good. <laughs> All right, man. What's your number two? So many great songs. My number two is Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac. And uh, it's a great tune. It's written by Stevie Nicks, performed by Buckingham Nicks before Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham joined Fleetwood Mac. Rhiannon is a major figure in Welsh mythology, but Stevie Nicks didn't know that. And when she found out after she had written the song, she was pretty surprised to find out how well her lyrics fit the legend. And she introduces it when it's done live. This is a song about an old Welsh witch. And the story of Rhiannon is fascinating, by the way. (laughs) I just did a little glancing into it. The recording is spliced together from about 15 takes some of them were great some of them were bad but they had a really great part in it and i think this is a pretty good example of how rock music was recorded in the late 70s this is from 1976 so i'm sure the bands were not at their most focused um, <laughs> the live performances apparently were epic mick fleetwood who obviously is the drummer and founder of fleetwood mac one of the founders said yeah. of stevie nicks's live performances her rhiannon in those days was like an exorcism i would love to have seen that that uh, maybe there's something online i can yeah. check out if i can find something i'll put it in the show notes when stevie nicks quit fleetwood mac her replacement someone named becca bramlett who i had never heard of until i decided to put rihanna on my list she wouldn't do the song live she also wouldn't do dreams and christy mcvee said you're yeah. absolutely right don't touch those just we were talking about how brian johnson wouldn't do bon scott's signature tune for acdc in the last episode right. um but of course stevie nicks came back to fleetwood mac and i don't know if they're still touring as an active band but i'm sure she's still singing the song rihanna is just a great tune Lynn Lindsay Buckingham's not playing with them anymore. Yeah, he, I think they've all been in and out. I don't know. Well, Christy McVie passed yeah. away recently. I'm not sure what the right. status of the band is. But in any case, I know Stevie Nicks still performs, and I can't imagine she doesn't do that one. Uh, let's, you know, I should have st- done this earlier. Let's listen to a little bit of Rhiannon. My number two song, Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac, written by Stevie Nicks. What's your number one, Seth? Top of the list is Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> and I'm not a huge Goo Goo Dolls fan, but this is their best song, in my opinion. And it's just really, really good. This song was originally put out on the soundtrack to the movie City of Angels and only later was added to the 1998 album Dizzy Up the Girl. The producers of the movie actually asked the Goo Goo Dolls to write a song for that movie. And after seeing the film, Johnny Resnick, who has stated multiple times that he, at the time, was experiencing serious bouts of writer's block when he was approached to write this song, and he's actually said he was on the verge of quitting the band before he wrote this song. Hmm. Resnick's quote about this power ballad is, I was thinking about the situation of the Nicolas Cage character in the movie. The guy is completely willing to give up his own immortality just to be able to feel something very human. And I think, wow, what an amazing thing it must be to fall in love with someone so much that you give up everything just to be with them. That's a pretty heavy thought. Hmm. When he wrote the song, it was being inspired by the movie. And when he named it, he just named it after a singer-songwriter named Iris Dement after he noticed her name in a concert listing in an L.A. newspaper. Let's listen to a bit of Iris right now. And I don't want the world to see me Cause I don't think that they 
In October of 2012, Iris was ranked number one on Billboard's Top 100 Pop Songs from 1992 to 2012 chart which ranked the top songs of the first 20 years of the mainstream top 40 slash pop songs chart. Can Billboard have more charts with weirder (laughs) names to put things on? This is just, I don't understand how they do that. But anyway, Iris held the record for most weeks on the radio for almost 22 years Hmm. before the weekend's blinding lights broke that longstanding record on August 22nd of 2020. Iris, great song by the Goo Goo Dolls. That's my number one. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Top of your list. What's the number one? The top of my list is Allison by Elvis Costello. At least the third time he showed up on the there top of my, my top five list. It's off his debut album, 1977, My Aim is True, which is a lyric from this song. And interestingly enough, Elvis wrote and recorded Allison before the attractions his band was formed. So the backing band on the recording is actually a band called Clover, whose members hmm. included Huey Lewis and other members of what went on to become Huey Lewis and the news. The yeah. Clover also included a guy named Alex Call, who we've discussed before because he was not part of Tommy Two-Tone, but he co-wrote the song 8675309 Jenny with one of the guys from Tommy yeah. Two-Tone. The guys from Clover also went on to play with the Doobie Brothers, Lucinda Williams, and a whole bunch of other really famous, uh, well-known acts. So these are good musicians. It's a great song, which I think displays what I love about Elvis Costello. His delivery, his vocal delivery is so expressive. His lyrics are literary. His music is simple, but it's not a slave to cliches. He's always happy to throw in a chord you're not expecting or an arpeggio. Even when the chord progressions are fairly straightforward, there's something that makes you sit up and take notice. Mm-hmm. The song is about, you know, kind of a theme we've talked about on the podcast before. This is a, it's not really clear whether he's sad because he can't have this girl, Allison, or he's sad because she's sad. It sounds more like the second one where he's watching her life and disappointed for her that it's not gone the way she wanted. He's never said who the song is about. He actually said it would cause some harm if I do that. He does, however, deny that the lyrics are about murder. A lot of people have interpreted it that way when he says, I think somebody better put out the big light because I can't stand to see you this way. And there's a couple other lines. The line, my aim is true, might refer to a gun or it might refer to my intentions are honorable, which I think is what he's always spelled right, yeah. to. The only thing he said about who it is, he said, I've always told people that I wrote the song Allison after seeing a beautiful checkout girl at the local supermarket. <laughs> She had a face for which a ship might have once been named. Scoundrels might once have fought mist swathed duels to defend her honor. Now she was punching in the prices on cans of beans at a cash register and looking as if all the hopes and dreams of her youth were draining away. All that were left would be soon squandered to a ruffian who told her convenient lies and trapped her still further. So once again, a, you know, a, an amazing character portrait by Elvis Costello, which is what he's so good at. Let's listen to a bit of Allison right here. Sometimes I wish that I could stop you from talking when I hear the silly things that you say I think somebody better put out the big light cause I can't stand to see you this way there's not much specifically more I want to say about the song it's just you know I know it's an overplayed song I know everybody knows it it is just such a great song Elvis Costello is such a great artist. This showcases his abilities as much as any song in his catalog. So Allison by Elvis Costello is my number one song. Good choice. Honorable mentions? All right. Honorable too many dimensions. Well, I got, way, I got uh, a bunch. But the yeah, good news so is I can, just say, I. I can just say a list of names and... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Should I go first? Yeah, why not? Okay, first of all, I got seven songs that we've already used as to- on our top five lists. Roxanne by The Police, okay. A Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash, Stacy's Mom, which is maybe cheating a little bit because it's got the word mom in there, by Fountains of Wayne, Miss Sweeney by Weezer, Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder, and Hey Jude by The Beatles. Oh, and also Michelle by The Beatles. I've got yeah. also Eleanor Rigby by The Beatles, and here's a list of five songs just from the White Album alone by The Beatles. Rocky Raccoon, Julia, <laughs> Dear Prudence, Martha My Dear, and Sexy Sadie. Can't have this topic without mentioning Lola by The Kinks, which I think is the first song that most people yeah. come to mind. But I just don't think it's in the top five, but it is definitely a notable song. Quickly, Suzanne by Leonard song, Co- yeah. yeah, Suzanne by Leonard Cohen, Angie by The Rolling Stones, Valerie by Mark Ronson featuring Amy Winehouse, Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, Josie by Steely Dan, which you mentioned, I think, Arabella by The Arctic Monkeys, yep. or uh, Arctic Monkeys, Alfie by Lily Allen, who's actually about her brother, Alfie Allen, who's a famous actor in his own right. I had Iris on my honorable mentions list along with Maggie May, which are two of the three songs I can name rock songs with mandolins in them. Um, Grace yeah. by Jeff Buckley, even though he wasn't probably talking about someone's name. Sweet Caroline by Neil no. Diamond. Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys. Sweet Jane by the Velvet Underground. Rio by Duran Duran. That is about a person, not a place. And too exactly. many others to mention. And I'm not mentioning, even though other, other Phil's going to really be all bent out of shape about it, I'm not mentioning either Jessica by the Allman Brothers Band, nor Brandy or a Fine Girl by Looking Glass. So, <laughs> what do you well, have? Don't worry, I other Phil, because I put my too many dimensions list together. Okay. And I alphabetized it. Nice. And Brandy by Looking Glass is the first one on the list. If you, uh, We'll put that in the show ahead. notes. We'll put your honorable too many dimension honorable mentions list in the show notes. All right. Brandy by Looking Glass. Charlie Brown by The Coasters. There's a song called Goliath by Carnival that I really like. Okay. Jeremy by Pearl Jam. Maybelline by Chuck Berry. Ooh, that's another one we use. Jeremy, I forgot. Melissa by the Almond Brothers. I would go with either Jessica or Melissa, but because Melissa actually has lyrics, that's the one I chose. Miss Gradenko by The Police, <laughs> that if you don't know that one, go pull that one up. Mm-hmm. It's a fun one. There's a song called Nicole by a band called Point Blank that I really, really like. It barely didn't make the top five. It's a really good song. You should go dig around and find that. Paul Revere by the Beastie Boys. I like Shadrach better than Paul Revere, but Paul Revere's really mm-hmm. good. Peg by Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. Good one. Every time I think about that song is Michael McDonald's backing vocals. I had Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac. Rosanna by Toto, just for the Rosanna mm. Shuffle by I Jeff Porcaro. I can't believe I forgot that one. And I picked another one by Elvis Costello. I picked Veronica, because that's the one that I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just, I've always connected with that one. It's a really good one. I had a huge other list, but I'm not going to go through any of the rest of those, but uh, we'll we'll put it in the notes. If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, check out the Spotify playlist that we've got in the show notes to hear them all. All right, kids, we're back. Because we did the songs with a name as the title, we were kind of kicking around the idea of names that cause you trouble as a music (laughs) fan. We thought it might be a little fun to talk about this for a minute or two. I don't know about you, but most of these songs have female names in them. And if you start dating someone and you want to make them a mixtape and you find out that you put the song with the person's name on it, and then they realize that they hate that song. Um, 
So my wife's name is Sarah. And there's a few songs that have her name spelled correctly because she spells it without the H. So there's Sarah by Fleetwood Mac. There's right. Sarah by Starship. Not Jefferson Starship, but Starship. And mm-hmm. then there's the song Sarah Smile by Hall & Oates. Mm-hmm. She can't stand all three of those songs. <laughs> And I don't know if that's because somebody tried to play them for her or she just didn't like, you know, hearing them over and over again and everybody saying like, hey, that's your song. I dated a, a woman in college and her name was Amanda and she hated uh, Amanda by Boston. Definitely top of my list. Amanda by Don Williams, the country singer. So do you have a list of songs that people hate no, because it's their name? Not too many, but more a list of names. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't yeah. think, uh, you know, I can't say I have a whole lot of specific instances of this, but I have twice been performing when there's been a Roxanne in the audience. And of course, everyone breaks into oh, wow. Roxanne, including the band. And uh, I think that would probably be something you have to deal with a lot if your name is Roxanne. Another right. one is Jenny. And we talked when we yeah. had uh, 8675309 Jenny in our One Hit Wonders top 10 list. We talked about not just the name, but the number and how many problems that song caused for people with oh, that phone yeah, number. Oh, the- <laughs> yeah. And then the other one that, that always was a huge issue. Yeah, the other one that always gets me personally is Joe's a tough name because when you see somebody named Joe, the first thing you say is "Hey Joe," and it's so hey, hard Joe, not yeah. to say "Where are you going with that gun in your hand?" is the next thing you say. <laughs> I really try to resist that impulse, but it comes up every single time. I thought of Amanda and Sarah too, and again Jessica and Beth and Allison and uh, you know all these other names that we were just discussing. I actually know a Rhiannon. I know a couple Jolines, and I just think anytime you have one of these names, oh my God, it must come up all the time. Some of them might not be so bad. You know, the one song that I can think of that ladies that have that name usually actually like is Sweet Caroline. Yeah, I have so, a little experience with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do know. that play at a, frequently at a restaurant owned by Caroline, and we always close with Sweet Caroline, and she loves it. But I think in the context of not a music concert, I think that might get a bit annoying. <laughs> we have two or Lola. Or a Red Sox game. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we have two students at Rock You named Lola, and it's all I can do not to bust into it every single time I see him so <laughs> <laughs> there was one other thing that i don't know if this has ever come up because i don't know anyone named either of these two names but the question that they might get is did you get named after that song mm, yeah yeah rhiannon was one mm-hmm. and then there's the one that when i heard it in the 80s i was like man in about 15 20 years somebody's gonna show up with this mm. name and I've never run into anybody with this name. What is Susudio, it? Susudio. That song um, by Phil Collins. Yeah, I no. swore somebody was going <laughs> to name their kid Susudio, and I've never run into it, never heard of anybody named that. No, I, let's hope that so, continues. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, there's one thing that I looked up that I'm not sure if you did. I looked up our names to see if there was a song that had one of our names as the title. And you, is your name technically Matthew and you just go by Matt or is your, okay. Then you actually have a song and it's written by John Denver. What? And it's about his uncle, but there's a song called Matthew by John Denver. I'll have to look that up right away. Being a guy named Seth, Mm. whenever you go by the kiosk things that have your name printed on stuff or like you're at Disneyland, there's always a Matt. 
There's mm. never a Seth. Mm. Not in, <laughs> certainly not in France. Not in France. Not in the U.S. Mm. I, I own the one thing that I found that actually had my name on it that I didn't have to order it specially, and it's a keychain I found in the '80s that still has my keys on it. But I found a song that's titled Seth. It's by a Swedish melodic death metal band called The Unguided. (laughs) They made a video for this song. It's not a single, but when I started the video up, all I could hear was the music, and it's a bunch of women playing the instruments. And I was like, holy cow, there's a melodic death metal band that's a bunch of women that's singing this song that's got my name on it. Crazy. Nope. It's a bunch of guys. They just got these models to do the video. Funny. So both of us actually have a song named after us. Kind of cool. shocking. <laughs> We wanted to tell the listeners about a new idea we've got for a segment. We need a name for it, too. You can help us out with that. We want you to write in with your situations. And Seth and I are each going to propose what we think is the perfect musical message to send, the right song for the situation. You want to quit your job? You want to propose marriage? You achieved a beatdown of your best friend in a tennis match or a golf game or something like that? You write to us. <laughs> write to us at podcast at rock-u.fr. And Seth and I will each come up with the perfect song that you can use to make your point. Whatever situation you got, I think we can find a song for it. So I know we can. Let us know what you got. All right, kids, we're back, and it's time for 60 Seconds of Insanity. It's the one-minute matchup. What are we doing today? Today, we're going to debate the best band logo or symbol. We're getting the stopwatches out. Who's yep. going? Why don't you go first? Sure, I'll be happy to. Tell me when you're ready. Okay. You count it off. Your 60 seconds of total insanity about rock logos and symbols starts now. I actually kept myself pretty sane with this one. I could have gone crazy. First of all, I set myself one limitation, which made it a lot easier. Uh, the logo or symbol could not have letters. So I was just looking for something purely visual, um, which made it a lot easier. I think the most recognizable logo in rock and roll is the Rolling Stones' lips. I just don't like the Rolling Stones that much, so I wasn't going with that. I think my favorite rock and roll uh, logo is the little glyph that um, Blue Oyster Cult used, and it was hidden on all their album covers. And I love that personally, but I don't think that's the best one. I'm going to make a few people happy with my choice that I've made unhappy many times by not mentioning this band nearly enough. I'm going to go with the Grateful Dead. They have three or four recognizable (laughs) symbols, and they're all right on brand. Everything from dancing bears to skulls with lightning on them to uh, skeletons with rose tiaras or uh, whatever you call those things that go around your head. Wreaths, thank you. There you go. So I love the Grateful Dead's logos more than I like their music. That's exactly one minute. There you go. Good job. Thanks. You may have mowed a little bit of my lawn, but not, not that much. How interesting. Are you ready for your minute? <laughs> I am ready. Your minute starts in three, two, one, go. Okay. Uh, so like you, the Rolling Stones, the tongue, that's probably the most iconic, but I didn't pick that. Van Halen's flying WVH or VH logo, sorry, uh, which got ripped off by Weezer. Uh, It's great, but I'm not going with that one. (laughs) Uh, Rush's Starman from 2112, another great one, but I'm not going with that. The best one has to be Iron Iron Maiden's mascot, Eddie. 
He's on every album cover and every concert shirt and practically all the rest of their merchandise. He's even on stage with the band. He started out as a paper mache head, then a fiberglass head. Then he was a guy in a costume on stilts who was about 10 feet tall. And they moved to an animatronic walk-on Eddie who's about 30 feet tall. Gibson.com wrote in 2008 that Eddie was the most recognizable metal icon in the world. Uh, and in 2023, he was featured on multiple sheets of commemorative stamps that were issued by the Royal Mail, even having a sheet of his own. And I'm in a minute, too. All right. So got to go with Eddie. But the Grateful Dead, Mango, yeah. that one's for you. Yeah. You know, the, the Dancing Bears, some of the other ones that I didn't mention are Public Enemy's that's Rifle Scope on a, B, mm-hmm. on a B-Boy that's made by Chuck D. Uh, mm-hmm. The Ramones Presidential Seal, even though it's got the words in it. And then yeah, the other one, one that I thought, I thought of. of was the uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, just the asterisk. Yeah. That was a good nope. one, too. Also, all bands and logos I considered definitely worthwhile. You know what the best logo is, though? The Rock U logo. <laughs> <laughs> Disqualified for presence of letters, but thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? (laughs) Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. Extra credit, the Rock You podcast is brought to you with support from our partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble Records is your one-stop shop for all music production in Paris. Everything from the composition to the creative side, to the recording and engineering, to the mixing and mastering, to the distribution and publication and publicity. Check them out at www.bigpebblerecords.com. And of course, you will hear lots of Rock You musicians on that label. Extra Credit, the Rock U podcast, is a production of Rock U. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinkle. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock U is a nonprofit association, Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>